Well, good morning. Our text this morning is found in John 15. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. John 15. I, uh, I'm excited to be with you. I bring you greetings from my church there in Lakewood, Long Beach. They're, uh, they're excited that I'm here. Well, they're not. I mean, they're not excited that I'm here. They're, some of them are probably th- thrilled I'm here. But all that to say, they're happy to... Uh, to send greetings to you this morning, and it's exciting to be with you. I know that over the last couple of weeks, uh, you've been sort of in, in conversation and in study about the idea of generosity. And so this morning, uh, we're going to pick up what will be a three-week series. I thought in, uh, in sort of thinking about this idea of generosity, you know, sometimes what happens as we, as we think about generosity is it becomes uh, sort of a duty or responsibility. There can be a sense of obligation or almost a drudgery to it, and yet there is great joy in being able to overflow into the lives of other people out of the blessings of what God has given to us. And so in the next three weeks, we'll be doing just a kind of a quick series about uncommon joy, places where we see joy in the scripture that's totally different than the way the world tells us joy is accomplished or found. And John 15 is no different than that. As we read this together, we're going to start in verse 1. And just to kind of give you a little bit of background, Jesus is only hours away from the time when he will be arrested, he will be tried, he will be crucified. And he knows that's coming, so that's in sight. He's teaching his disciples, he's walking them through some things, and they're actually, if you see at the end of John 14, he says, hey, let's get up and move from this place. So they're, they're kind of moving as John 15 happens. They're on the pathway, and Jesus stops along the way, and he gives this incredible uh, challenge to his disciples in John 15. Let's read it together. John 15, verse 1, says this. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Would you pray with me this morning as we begin? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ability to hold it in our hands, to read the words on the page, and to recognize that they go far beyond any book we ever read. That what we're looking at is your word to us, God, living and active able to cut to the core of us, to encourage us and inspire us, to convict us at times, but always to leave us different than it found us. And so this morning, we continue our worship of you through the study of your word, and we pray that you would glorify yourself in this place, and that you would be glorified through our study, that your spirit would work in conjunction with your word to transform us. Let us not be hearers of the word only, but doers, people who are transformed by what we see here this morning. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Joel mentioned to you, I've just been at Hume Lake for the week. It was a, a great week there. But you know, when you, when you go out of town, you, you sort of have to work to try and prepare yourself. For, you, don't, you don't want things to fall apart when you're away. You know what I'm saying? So you do some things before you leave town to make sure everything in your home or everything in your job are sort of taken care of. We, uh, we left and went to Hume for a week. We've got two dogs. I've got four kids and two dogs. So it's a little bit of a busy house. 
And uh, we took the kids with us to camp. We figured that would be a nice thing to do. But we left the dogs because that would have been chaos. And there was a girl from our church that we asked to come and watch the dogs while we're gone. Now, if it were up to me, I would basically just have looked at this girl and said, hey, do your best to make sure they don't die. How about that? Don't let the dogs die. That's kind of all I would have said. But it's interesting because my wife prepared a four-page document about how to take care of the dogs while we're gone. You know, this poor girl who thought she was going to put food in a dish, she had to come over and read this thing. I'm actually working to try and get my wife to find a publisher for a, a, a it's actually a two-volume set that she's written uh, for babysitters whenever we go someplace. She's, she's written this two-volume set called 800,000 Things You Need to Know in the Hour Will Be at Dinner. And uh, it's, a powerful, it's a powerful work that she's been working on for years. But she's so very thorough, right? She's so thorough in making sure that while we're away, there's no possible thing that could go wrong that the babysitter or the dog sitter wouldn't be able to handle it. And I like that about her, even though it's not necessarily my style, you know. I like that, that she's so thorough. Jesus is walking with his disciples, and he recognizes that it's merely hours until he will be arrested and taken away. And the relationship that he has with them will change because of the physical nature of their discipleship up until that point. He's been walking with them. They've been sharing meals. They've been able to look and sort of glance around. And he's teaching them as they go. But he knows that there's a time coming, as he says to them himself, when the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will scatter. And in anticipation of the sort of difficulty that is coming their way as disciples, in John 15, we see him stop as they're walking along the pathway. We see him stop and deliver this challenge through the, the, the sort of metaphor, the analogy of a vine, a vineyard, and it's absolutely as relevant for them then as it is for us this morning. I want us to look at it because as Jesus says, even in the last verse we read this morning in 11, this message that he gives to them is for their joy for their joy, that his joy would be in them and that their joy would be full. So let's look at it together. The first thing he says and the first thing I want us to recognize and understand about what Jesus is saying to his disciples is right there in the first verse. And you might have missed it, but in the first verse he says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Now if you've been around the church for any period of time, you've probably heard that verse before. You may have even studied it before. But sometimes in our sort of rush to get on to the next piece, we miss actually the most important thing Jesus says in that first verse. The most important word in that first verse is the word true. Jesus is saying something significant and important in that very first phrase when he looks at his disciples and he says, I am the true vine. He doesn't just say I'm a vine. He doesn't just say I am the vine. He says I'm the true vine. And the distinction that he's making is significant. Because Jesus knows that his disciples, and by extension we as well, will be tempted in our lives to try and connect ourselves to sources of life that cannot sustain us. Sources of life that cannot sustain us. It says in John 1, 4, speaking about the Lord Jesus, that in him was life, and that life was the light of man. He says himself in John 14, he says, Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, Jesus says, you also will live. Our lives are connected to him. We have life because he has life. And so here at the beginning of John 15, Jesus is looking at his disciples and he's saying, guys, don't miss this. I am the true vine. And this is a message we need to hear as well. Because so often we're trying to find sustenance. We're trying to find life in these things that simply can't give it. It's no wonder that in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, Solomon, who had the opportunity to sort of taste and experience everything that this life offers, says, the eye never has its fill of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. 
We're insatiable as people, and the reason we're constantly looking for other things to try and satisfy us is that we're typically connecting ourselves to false vines that are not capable of bringing life to us. Jesus says, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. I wonder this morning where you turn for sustenance. For some people, it's their job, it's their career, trying to sort of walk up the ladder. For some people, it's putting money into a bank account. It might be a relationship. It might be a, a, a community of people. It might be a hobby or a sport. There are all kinds of things we turn to to try and sustain ourselves. And yet, you know, as well as I do, that none of those things satisfy in the long run because they're false vines. It's even possible for us as human beings to get connected to religion in a way that is not sustaining. It's possible for us to consider the church our vine, or to consider a teacher or a pastor our vine, or to consider a group of people or a small group or a class, that those things would be our vine and they would be life-giving. But Jesus says, look, it's none of those things. In fact, some theologians suggest that based on the, the course he would be walking at this point, it's entirely possible that he delivers this address in John 15 while standing in front of the temple. Now, on the front of the temple was a beautifully carved and ornate, it was a gilded representation of a vine. Because the Hebrew people considered themselves to be the vine of God. It says in Psalms 80, verse 8, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. There was sort of a, a national identity for the Jewish people in considering themselves the vine of God, the vineyard of God. And Jesus, potentially, as he delivers this address in John 15, may have actually been standing with the temple over his shoulder, saying to his disciples, in effect, it's not this church, it's not this temple, it's not this national identity, it's me. I am the source of life. I, he says, am the true vine. We find life in Jesus. In him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. You know, I, I read an article a few uh, years ago about a guy who started playing one of these online role-playing games. Have you seen those or heard about them? Like a, like a World of Warcraft or an EverQuest or whatever. The guy logs in, he gets it all set up, and he starts playing. He, he takes the role, his character is of like a fake blacksmith, right? So every day he gets on the computer and he clicks his mouse and he takes his fake blacksmith out into the fake mountains to mine for fake ore. You know what I'm talking about? And so he's mining for fake ore, click, 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 click. He takes the fake ore back to his fake forge where he makes fake swords that he sells to fake wizards for fake money, right? And he starts doing this and he gets really into it. And over time, he's actually amassing more and more fake money. He's able to build a, a bigger forge, a fake forge nonetheless, but it's taking up more of his time. His, his swords and his armor, they sort of get in demand in this online community. He builds a reputation for himself and it gets to the place where he's actually having to be in this game world, this fake world, something like 16 hours a day just to manage all the stuff he's doing. Clicking away, mining for fake ore, mining it, you know, forging it into fake swords, selling it for fake money. And as I read the article, it said that at some point his wife comes to him and she says, you know, you spend all your time on the computer. Your kids never see you. I never see you. We want you to pay attention to us. And he says, I got, I got to keep at this. I'm just about to hit the level. I'm about to hit the, the level cap that I wanted to reach. And it says in the story that the, the wife ends up taking their kids and going to her mother's, leaving him. He loses his wife. She divorces him. His job calls and says, hey, you've taken all your sick days. You've taken all of your, all of your vacation days. We haven't seen you in a while. Like, what's going on? He's playing this video game and playing this video game. He ends up losing his job. He has no real money to pay his real bills. And so they take his real house away. 
They close, they shut down his real electricity and they end up having to confiscate his real computer because he has no money to pay his bills. And everything he had worked so hard to amass, he loses. Why? He was willing to sacrifice what was real in order to gain what was fake. Now we look at that guy and you go, oh, I know what this is. This is a story about an idiot, right? This is a story about a very stupid human being, right? A guy who would give up his wife and his kids in order to, you know, mine for fake ore. That seems like an idiot, right? I imagine that there are angels in heaven who watch us in our busyness and go, these idiots, what are they doing? They're working so hard to collect all this stuff that doesn't last, that has no value in the kingdom of God. They're working so hard, clicking away for all of this stuff that only matters in their world and does not matter in the kingdom of God. And they're not sustained by it. They're not satisfied. They're absolutely insatiable because Jesus is the only true vine. He looks at his disciples and he says, guys, don't miss it. I'm the true vine. The first thing he says, appreciate the true vine. The second thing he says to them is anticipate the pruning of the Father. Appreciate the true vine and then anticipate the pruning of the Father. Look, back to John 15. He says, I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Second thing he says is anticipate the pruning of the Father. Now here's the deal, you guys. We don't like pruning, right? But according to Jesus, this pruning of the Father is the difference between some fruit and much fruit, right? The plan of the vine dresser, his organizational plan, his strategy, and pruning. But the problem, and Jesus knows this about his disciples, he also knows it about us, the problem is that we're not people who really like Discipline. We don't like being pruned. We don't like those moments when God says, oh, you thought you were going to go this way? No, I want you over here. You thought you were going to work this job? No, you're going to work this job. Oh, you thought this is how your life was going to turn out? No, it's going to be like this. We don't like to have our lives dictated by somebody else because as we're celebrating tomorrow on July 4th, we like our freedom. We like our independence. And so we get frustrated sometimes at the pruning of the Father. The pruning of the Father. I, was, I had my family at... Um, Target, which is like our happy place in my family, right? We were at Target, and I made this, like, the number one mistake that all parents make in a store like Target. I told my son, hey, we're going to go and look at the toys, but we're not buying anything, right? You're laughing because you've done that, right? We're just going to look. We're going to look at the toys. So I take my son. At the time, he was, like, three, and we're walking through the Target, and we're looking at the toys and whatever, and all of a sudden, he goes, Dad, I want that truck, and I was like, well, I appreciate that. That is a cool truck, my man. Well, when your birthday comes up in eight months, maybe you can have that, you know? And he's like, I want the truck. And I was like, right, I hear you, but I also already told you that we're just looking today. We're browsing, like a kid knows what browsing is, right? We're browsing. He goes, I want the truck! I want the truck! And I was like, hey, 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 now, take it down a notch, right? He goes, I want the truck! And he's like yelling. Now, you've all heard that family in Target that's yelling, right? That's my family. That's my, you've seen us there, right? My son, I want the truck. And so I said, hey, Jack, buddy, if you don't be quiet, daddy's going to take you out to the car and mommy's going to finish up the shopping because we're not going to do this thing in here. He goes, I want the truck. I want the truck. So I kept my word. I scoop up my boy, you know, and I start walking. Of course, the toy section's at the very back of the Target, right? So I'm carrying this screaming kid out of Target. I want the truck. I want the truck. And about halfway through the store, right around like the women's clothing, his tune changes. He goes, don't lock me in the car again. It's too hot in the car. People die in cars all the time. Don't lock. Well, now here's the thing. I've never locked that kid in the car, right? 
I've never done that. What's he doing? All the people in Target are looking at me like, you, sir, are a terrible father, you know? And I'm like, no, I don't lock him in the car. That's not what I'm doing. I'm going out there with him. But nobody would listen. Why does he do that to me? He did that to me because we don't like to be disciplined. We don't like to be told what to do. We don't like to be pruned. And sometimes what happens in the life of disciples, people that are following the Lord Jesus, is what happens when the vine dresser starts to prune your life and he starts to lead you in the direction that he has planned for you, you can become resentful of that. Some people become angry at God. You may have met people like that. You may be that kind of person who wants to shake their fist at the sky and say, this isn't what I planned. Or even worse, I think, is when you meet those people who have become like the, like the Christian equivalent of Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, you know them? Where you talk to them like, hey, how are you? And they're like, well... It's really hard to follow Jesus. And I'm always like, oh, I wish I hadn't asked. Like, I totally wish we hadn't been talking to each other, right? (laughs) So sorry I brought that up. But you find people that sort of fall into self-pity. And they kind of want to wallow in this self-pity because of the pruning of God. Jesus knows that his relationship with the guys is going to change. That he's going to die and, and, and rise from the dead, but that then he's going to ascend. The spirit will be present, but it won't be in the same way. And he says, guys, it's vital that you appreciate the true vine, but also that you anticipate the pruning of the Father. I love what it says in Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 12, about this very thing. Hebrews 12, 5 says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he approves or receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Beside this, we have all had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness." For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. What's it saying in Hebrews 12? It's a great passage. It says that when we're disciplined by God, that that's actually the tangible evidence of his affection for us. That that's actually proof that we're sons and daughters. You can take this verse and flip it and say the opposite, which is this. If you're not experiencing the pruning of the Father, the discipline of the Father, then you have to question the legitimacy of your faith. Because he prunes and disciplines those he loves, that he calls sons and daughters. It's proof of the authenticity of our adoption. And he does it because he loves us. He says, don't get frustrated when you're disciplined, but recognize that God loves you. That it's for your good that he disciplines you. Jesus says, appreciate the true vine. He says, anticipate the pruning of the Father. And then thirdly, he says in John 15, abide. Look at what he says in verse 4. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me... You can do nothing. The third point that Jesus is making is the value and importance of abiding. Now, abiding is kind of a weird word, right? It's not one that we use in common, like, conversation very often. So it can get a little confused. Like, if I walked up to you after the service today and was like, hey, I was thinking maybe after the service today, you and me could 
abide together, you know, just abide. You'd be like, whoa, hey, buddy, I don't know uh, what you're talking about. I'd be like, I just want to abide with you. Let's just abide. You and me, we're going to abide. You'd be like, security, right? I need some help with this guy. Keep the kids away from him. Let's abide, you know? It's just not, it's not a word that we use a bunch, and therefore it kind of gets lost. Listen, the word abide, what Jesus is saying again and again in this passage, the word abide basically means stay, but it doesn't just mean stay. The, the, the implication, or, or it could be translated, the, the idea, the picture, is the idea of active stillness. Active stillness. Isn't that weird? Because you think about stillness as not doing anything, but the idea of abiding is the idea of active stillness. Let me paint a picture for you. It's just kind of get in your head. Uh, you, you probably are aware that like a, like a jet fighter, uh, like an F-15, an F-16, one of those, they want those things to be really fast, and so they have really small fuel tanks, right? A jet fighter. If you want to take a jet fighter, uh, you know, intercontinental, you want to take it to the other side of the world, you've got a couple of options. You can put it on an aircraft carrier and transport it that way, or it is possible to refuel an F-15 or an F-16, one of these jet fighters, it is possible to refuel one of those midair. And the way they do that is they have a big tanker plane that's filled with fuel, and it goes up in the air, and it can actually refuel the plane while it's in flight. But look, the jet fighter pilot doesn't have the ability to go, oh, you know what, we're out of gas, so catch me and fill me up, or I don't know what's going to happen. He doesn't have the ability to, to take his hands off the controls, right? In order to be refueled midair, the jet fighter has to learn the trajectory, the airspeed, the direction, everything about that tanker, and then find himself actively still, make himself actively still. It actually takes control by the jet fighter to be in sync and in harmony with that tanker. And he can be refueled midair, not by taking his hands off the controls, but by purposefully getting in sync with the tanker. Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, abide in me, remain in me, be actively still in me. And there's two different ways he says that happens, two different ways that this sort of active stillness takes place. The first one is in his word. Look at what he says in verse 7. He says, if you abide in me, if you remain actively still in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. If my words remain in you, if you abide in my word, that's the first way in which this sort of active stillness takes place, that we would remain or be actively still in his word, in the things that he said. It's kind of astounding to me that we live in a world where I talk to people all the time and they go, well, I'm just waiting for God to speak to me. You know, and, and they'll look all kinds of places. They're waiting for God to, you know, write something in the clouds or they're looking for God to spell something out in the alphabet serial, you know, and you're like, there's no vowels, God. I don't know where you want me to go. It doesn't make any sense, right? Too many marshmallows. We're waiting for God to speak. We go, oh, I'm waiting for God to reveal something to me about where I'm supposed to go. I find it absolutely crazy that there are so many people waiting for God to speak when he's already given us his word. God has revealed to us the truth of who he is and the truth of who we were created to be. And he's done so in the written word. We can hold this in our hands and study it together and he's glorified in that process. And yet so many people, they don't remain actively still in his word. They're waiting for some extra revelation. Now look, could God speak to you through a cloud formation? He absolutely could. Could he spell something out in the alphabet serial? He absolutely could. God could choose to speak to you any way he wants. And he does and can. But when you've already got this, why do we spend so much time waiting for something extra when he's already spoken to us through the scriptures? You want to abide in him? You want to remain actively still? 
be rooted in his word. It's no coincidence that when Paul is discipling Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says, but as for you, continue in what you've learned. This is verse 14. Continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture, he says, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. He says, remain in my word. Abide in my word. That's how we remain actively still. That's one of two ways he mentions in this passage. To be rooted in the things that he said. To be connected to him in the things that he's revealed to us. The second thing and the second way we abide is through his love. Look back to John 15. In John 15, look at what it says in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love, he says. And and you read that and you go, oh, that's so beautiful. I'm going to do that. I'm going to remain actively still in his love. And the way I'm going to do it, I'm just going to wrap my arms around myself and just just abide in his love. He just loves me and I'm so lovable. And God just, you know, I'm just such a great love thing between us. You sort of get this idea that it's kind of this uh, self-realization deal where you look in the mirror and you just go, yeah, remind yourself again and again how loved you are. No, no, Jesus says that the way we abide in his love is not by hugging ourselves or repeating some sort of mantra to ourselves. Listen to how Jesus says we abide in his love because it might surprise you. In verse 10, so 9 we just read, John 15, 9, he says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Verse 10, he says, If you keep my commandments you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, this might be contrary to what you think, but what he's saying is that the commandments he's given us, the expectation he's laid out in his word, the clarity with which he's, he's made known to mankind who he is and who he created us to be, those commandments are actually a demonstration of his love to us. Because what he's telling us is, this is how I created you to live. This is what pleases me. This is how you glorify me. I created you to worship me in your thoughts and words and deeds and attitudes, and this is how you do it. He's giving us a roadmap in his commandments of how we best live. And it's crazy because so often people go, oh, you know, Christianity, that's just like following these rules, and you got to stop doing everything you like and start doing everything you hate. But that's not it at all. It's not that God is simply going, hey, I picked some arbitrary things that you're going to have to do, and if you don't, then I will smite thee, Right? These aren't arbitrary commandments that God gives us in his word. Everything that God calls us to, every expectation he places upon our life is a demonstration of his affection. It's him going, this is your best. This is what you were created for. Obey me. And so it's in obeying God's word that we experience his love. More than just repeating things to ourselves, in obedience, we sense his love in a tangible way because our lives change And we experience life as it was intended to be lived. Titus chapter 2 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. Don't be confused here. It says the grace of God, the grace of God teaches us to renounce ungodliness. Don't get these out of order. There is a common mistake which is, well, I have to obey him if he's going to love me. 
I have to start doing good deeds and following his commandments to receive his love. No, no, no. No, no, no. That would deny the grace of God. Don't get these backwards. The grace of God, it says in Titus 2, teaches us to renounce ungodliness. And as we start to obey him in response to his love, we experience even more of his love. There's actually a really beautiful cycle that happens here. He loves us first. We obey him and experience more and more and more of his love as we fall into line with the things he's prepared for us. We don't do good deeds in order to obtain his love. He loves us because he is love. And we follow him in response. Jesus says, abide in me, remain actively still. Anticipate the pruning of the Father. Appreciate the true vine as a source of life and sustenance. But abide in me, abide in my word and abide in my love. And if we do that, you go, well, how do I know if I'm abiding and how do I know if I'm remaining actively still? Here's the fourth thing, and by the way, in this fourth point, I have failed you as a pastor and a preacher. Uh, my first three points all start with the same letter, which I tried really hard to make happen for the fourth. The alliteration thing is a powerful tool, but I just couldn't make it work, right? I couldn't make it work. I tried, my, my first I thought my fourth point would be actuate fruit, but actuate's a stupid word. And then my son said maybe I should use the word accumulate fruit, but accumulating fruit is, just feels like sort of collecting it, which we'll talk about in a second, is not what Jesus means. So I finally just decided that my fourth point today would be apples. <laughs> apples. It starts with an A, and it's kind of about fruit. It's not perfect. I get that. You guys can send me mean emails later if you want. Uh, the fourth thing Jesus says is that when we're anticipating the pruning of the Father, when we're, uh, when we're appreciating the true vine, when we're abiding in his word and in his love, that there is a thing that happens in our lives. And it's that we bear fruit. It's that we bear fruit. Jesus says this. Look at verse 5 of John 15. In John 15, verse 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Look at verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. It's not unlike what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Famously, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7 Jesus says in verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits." Jesus says, if you're abiding in me, you will bear fruit. And I think the temptation for us, or the danger for us maybe, is to go, oh, so I'm supposed to have fruit in my life. And we know what that is, right? We know the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, all those things. The tendency for a Christian is to go, oh, well, it says if I'm being a faithful follower of Jesus that I'm going to have this fruit, so I just got sort of, to produce it. Be very slow. And be very cautious because the passage doesn't say that we will produce fruit. In fact, you and I are incapable of producing fruit. We bear fruit, which basically just means to hold it in transition, but we don't produce fruit. And the, the tendency can be for us to go, well, I'm supposed to have fruit, so I know what that fruit is, so I'm just going to kind of duct tape it to my branches, right? And we can fall into a pattern where as Christians we start duct taping fruit under our branches. And we say to people, oh, yeah, you know, uh, I don't know if you've seen this fruit or not. Last Thanksgiving, I didn't have turkey. I went to Mexico and I just ate beans. 
And people are like, you did what? You didn't have turkey? That's true. I made a sacrifice for the poor in Mexico and just ate beans. People are like, that's amazing. We're like, I know, it's pretty awesome fruit. I also read the Bible in six months. Don't know if I told you that. Look at that fruit, you know? And we tape this fruit onto ourselves. And we go, hey, look at all the good things I'm doing. Look at what a great Christian I am. Look at all the love and joy and peace and patience on me. And people look at it. It works, right? And you fall into a trap of being false. People go, that's incredible fruit. But what's the problem with duct tape fruit, by the way? The problem with duct tape fruit is it didn't grow there. And it won't be sustained there. So what, it takes a day, a week, and that fruit starts to look rotten. Nobody's paying attention to it anymore. So you're in the constant process of having to pull off that old fruit and duct tape new fruit on and make sure people see it. And if you're the kind of person that's duct taping fruit onto your branches, how tired are you? That's an exhausting process. Why? Because you're putting fruit out by your own effort. And you're probably ready to quit. You probably know people who have quit because that's just too tiring to put fruit on your branches. That's not how it works. Jesus in Matthew 7 and in John 15 is not calling us to produce fruit. He's calling us to bear fruit that is produced by him. In Matthew 7, by the way, he's not really even talking about fruit. He's talking about trees. You see, the right kind of tree produces fruit the right kind of fruit as a byproduct of being the right kind of tree. Does that make sense? An orange tree is never going, oh man, I hope I don't make apples this month, right? No, an orange tree is an orange tree, so it makes oranges. That's what it does. It doesn't have to think about it. That's just what an orange tree does. And people who are abiding in Christ, who appreciate the true vine, who anticipate the pruning of the Father, who abide in His Word and in His love, they don't try and be loving. They don't try and be peaceful. They don't try and be patient. That fruit is produced in them, it says in Philippians 1. That fruit is produced in them through Christ Jesus. Effortless. We just bear it. See, in this, in this picture that Jesus is painting, we're branches. And you might go, well, that's not very glamorous. It's not intended to be glamorous. There is nothing glamorous about being a branch. You look at a, a beautiful orchard or a beautiful piece of fruit and you don't think about the branch. The branch is absolutely forgettable. And it's also worth noting that the fruit that is produced in us that we bear is not for us. Sometimes people will go, well, I just love following Jesus because I feel so peaceful and I feel so loving and kind. And it's like, no, no, no. That fruit's not for you. It's for the people around you. The fruit of the Spirit of God that is produced by the Spirit of God that we bear is for the consumption of others. Think about love and joy and peace, any of those things. What, if I put you in a room in isolation and it was just you by yourself and we're looking through the little glass window, you're sitting in a room and I go, oh, look how patient that guy is in there. You go, what, what are you talking about? What difference does that make? He's all by himself. Patience is only beautiful in community. Love is only beautiful in community. Joy and peace, all these things only matter in the benefits they bring to others and the glory of God. Jesus says, guys, Appreciate the true vine. Anticipate the pruning of my Father. Don't let it derail you. Abide in me, in my word and in my love. And fruit will be manifested in you by my power. And you'll prove to be my disciples. The proof is in the fruit that's produced by him. This morning we're talking about the joy of the branch. The joy of the branch is in having fruit produced in it for the good of other people. The joy of the branch is found in the knowledge that the vine, who is Christ will supply all we need to bear fruit. The farmer will shape us, and all we have to do, all we do, is actively stay. Actively stay, abide. 
The vine produces all we need for fruit. The farmer's plan will shape and guide us. We just abide for the good of other people. You've been talking about generosity, and I think sometimes as Christians, again, we sort of think of ourselves as receptacles for God's love and his blessing. And we go, oh, I just want more and more of God's love and his blessing. Just fill me up with it, God. Yeah, that's awesome, right? But can I tell you, well, we're not, we're not meant to be receptacles for God's love. We're meant to be conduits for God's love. That the love and the blessing of God would pour into us and out of us into the lives of other people. That's what a branch does. A branch is just a conduit for the, the sustenance of the true vine to flow through us to the blessing of God and others as fruit is manifest in us. That's the joy of the branch. And there is real joy in it. It's not joy like the world knows. It's not joy in pursuing one other thing that ultimately won't satisfy you. It's joy in being able to rest, actively rest, in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting that he will produce fruit, not because you tried hard enough, but because of the kind of tree you are, because of the root you're connected to. That fruit will be produced for the benefit of God's glory and the good of others. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the way that every time, even, even teaching it three times, God, I feel you speak to me in fresh ways, unique ways. Thank you that you're a God who is active in our lives, that you don't just abandon us and walk away, but that you are with us, that your spirit speaks to us, and that you and your great foresight looked at your disciples and said, they're going to need to know this, that I'm the true vine, that my Father's plan will be enacted for the benefit of other people as they stay, actively remain. God, I thank you for the relevance that message has in our life this morning, some 2,000 years later, and we still are connecting ourselves to false vines frustrated at your discipline, trying to do Christianity on our own. Help us to put our faith in you, the true vine, that you would be glorified and others would be blessed. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.